0: If you have a Bible, if you would, go ahead and open it to Genesis 38. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, a series entitled Not Alone. Last week in Genesis 37, we saw a family, Jacob's family, marked by favoritism and hatred jealousy, conspiracy to murder, and deception. And this family is not some pagan family who doesn't know the Lord. No, this is Jacob's family. This is the family that God promised, I'm going to do this work of salvation for the world through this family. And we saw last week they are a dysfunctional family. It's difficult to imagine how things could get much worse for this family, and then we come to Genesis chapter 38 this morning. Genesis 38, there is worldliness, there is sexual abuse, selfishness, the Lord puts two people to death. There's blame-shifting, embarrassment, prostitution, deception, hypocrisy, and incest. All in the span of 30 verses. And it's the story of Judah and Tamar. Now this last week, I, I talked to a handful of people who asked me, Oh, are you preaching on Genesis 38 this week? And when I said yes, I just got these big eyes. Like, oh that passage. You see, it's one of the most uncomfortable passages of Scripture. And as Christians, we can be a little bit embarrassed that this is in our Bibles. Um, But when you really think about it, it is wonderful that God's Word includes stories like Judah and Tamar. It, It means that The way that God speaks, he doesn't shy away from real life. You see, the Bible is not a leave it to beaver episode or pick your favorite show, little house on the prairie episode where everything kind of ties off neatly and tidily by the end of the episode. No, real life has deep sin and brokenness. And while we need a vision, We need a vision for people resisting sin, resisting temptation, trusting the Lord. We also need a vision for what happens when God's people give way to sin. Like a lot of sin over a long time, turning away from him. Is there any hope when it looks like they have reached the point of no return? Does God speak to such things? Yes, he does. Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is about sufferers, sinners, and the Savior. So if you have your Bible open, Genesis 38, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur from uh, Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, "'Come,' Let me come into you, for he did not know that, it was his, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the, your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law... Has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father in law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are the signet, and the cord, and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand behold his brother came out and she said what a breach you have made for yourself therefore his name was called Perez afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah Let's pray Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we come, there are passages that are so encouraging and uplifting, and there are others that are hard and difficult, but Lord, real life is difficult. Real life is marked by sin and brokenness, and I pray you would use this passage to lift our eyes and to impart hope to us, Lord. In a way that perhaps no other passage might be able to do, Lord, even this morning, calling out to those who are lost, to those who feel far gone, to those who think I- I've reached a point of no return. Lord, we have people like this in our lives that we relate with in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. People who need to know that there's hope and that you are a God of grace. And so I pray that you would meet us, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in, his, it's in his name that we boldly come to you. Amen. Well, in this disturbing account of God's people, we see sufferers and sinners, and we're pointed to the Savior. So let's begin with sufferers and and sinners. Verse 1 opens saying, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. So Judah was living with his family in Hebron, but as we've seen thus far, life was not great. Family life was not great for Judah. Uh, Judah's father Jacob was playing favorites, and Judah was not his favorite. We saw this when Ju- uh, when Esau was about to was threatening to come, and Jacob was threatened, thinking they're going to kill me. And so, what does he do? He staggers his children and his wives, and who does he put out front? He puts out front. Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Leah, and towards the back, he puts his favorite wife Rachel and his favorite son Joseph. Basically, they are the human shield, they are the expendable ones, and Jacob keeps his favorites, precious ones, close. And then there's the bad report. We saw this last week, Genesis 37. Uh, Joseph brought a bad report to his father of his brothers, and Jacob believed that report. Then there was the splendid coat. Just a a physical reminder that Jacob has a favorite son, it's Joseph, and it's not Judah. And then when the brothers returned... ...with the coat and had the, the goat's blood on it and gave it to their father. It says at the end of Genesis 37, he said, I, I'm going to mourn. I'm going to go down to Sheol. He refused to be comforted. Basically saying, no one else in the family matters. Only Joseph. I know I have 11 other sons, but Joseph is not here. And so it seemed clear to Judah, life at home is miserable... Life at home is a regular reminder that my father doesn't actually love me. And so he left and he went to a Canaanite city. It seems in his mind that it can't be much worse living among the godless or living amongst God's people. It's basically a toss-up. It's that bad. And, you know, perhaps you've had thoughts like that before. Perhaps you can relate that things have happened in your life or in your family that are to such a degree that you think, I I, I can't imagine it getting worse than this. Possibly a church experience where you've been sinned against. You see, Judah is a sufferer. Coming out of chapter 37, coming into 38, he is a sufferer. But then Judah decides, Judah chooses in his suffering to give way to sin. Sin against God. Sin against others. How do we see this? Well, he goes to live in the Canaanite city. His friend is Hera, the Adolamite. He's twice, he's called his friend. So he makes friends with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. He sees a woman of Canaan. And it says he took her to be his wife. That's what it says in verse 2. He saw her and he took her. That's not lovingly, patiently marrying her. That's the same phrase that's used throughout Genesis to talk about lustful taking of a woman against her will. It happened, uh, Shechem took, saw and took Dinah, Genesis 34. Uh, Pharaoh saw and took Sarah to be his wife. And so Judah sins against this woman. And he's also sinning in his choice of a bride. How many times have we heard in Genesis, don't take a wife from the daughter of the Canaanites. That's what Abraham said and he sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac. That's what Isaac said to Jacob. That's why Jacob went all the way back to Mesopotamia. So Judah is a sufferer. But Judah is also choosing in his suffering to sin. And then we're introduced to Judah's sons. First to his firstborn is Ur. He marries a Canaanite woman as well, Tamar. Additionally, we're told in verse 7 that Ur was wicked. We don't know what he did, but we're told that it was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord Put him to death. So in verse 8, Judah tells Onan to perform the duty of a brother in law for Tamar. And this was standard practice in the ancient Near East. It gets codified in Deuteronomy 25. It's called leveret marriage. And in the case where a man dies childless, his brother would take his widow and raise up offspring so that she would conceive. A son, and it had two purposes. It was to continue the name of that man, and it was to provide for this widow. That son, when he grew up, would take care of his widowed mother, mother. So it was kind of a twofold purpose. Well, Onan doesn't want to raise up offspring for his brother. He's selfish. But instead of just coming out and saying, No, I don't want to do that, he makes it look like that's what he's doing. He ends up having sex with Tamar repeatedly. He looks like he's obeying Judah. He looks like he's serving Ur and Tamar, but he's actually sexually abusing Tamar. And the Lord puts him to death as well. And so now Judah, he had three sons. Two of them are now dead. It's another part of his suffering. But again, he responds to his suffering by adding more sin to it. He looks at Tamar and he says, I see the problem. She's a bad luck bride. I'm not going to give my third son to her and lose my third son. And so he sends her back to her father's house. He's really vague about it. We're told that he, he gives way to fear. And so all of this suffering and this sinning of Judah, it brings us to Tamar. She is the main sufferer in Genesis 38. She's likely a teenager. Somewhere 16, 18 years old. She's already twice widowed. The Lord put her husband Ur to death for his wickedness. Onan was selfish. Onan sexually abused her. And while she was probably relieved to get justice from the Lord, she was also just struck with the blame from her father in law. So she is treated as damaged goods, and she has no prospect for future care. And so, what does Tamar do in her suffering? Well, she sins. You've seen you're, you're that pattern. Somebody suffers and they respond in sin. She knows of Judah's sexual appetite. She knows if she just veils her face, dresses up like a prostitute, sits on the roadside, he will come. And just like he thought, she thought, he does. He comes, he asks, and she secures. For the price of prostitution, she secures his cord and his signet and his staff. Today, that would be like a wallet and keys and a phone. And Judah goes into her, she conceives, and then they both leave. And when Judah tries to send the promised goat, he sends it by the hand of his friend, Hira. This is not a great friend. A great friend would talk him out of this. But instead, he's running his prostitution errands. He can't find her. And frankly, Judah is embarrassed. The more that they just ask, where is this prostitute? The more widely his sin is proclaimed. So he's like, okay, tried to send the goat. It didn't work. So not only is Judah in sin, but Judah is promulgating that with others. And a few months later, word comes To Judah, Tamar is pregnant, and his response is indignant. Bring her out and let her be burned. It's a self-righteous, hypocritical response for a man who's been sexually immoral himself multiple times. So not only is Judah sinning, like suffering and sinning, he is blind to his sins. So there's plenty of sin and plenty of suffering going around in Genesis 38. But the point of this chapter is not just to tell us about sufferers and sinners, but to point us to the Savior. The Savior. Amidst all of this horrible suffering and sin, God is saving and transforming Judah. The place where he meets Te- Tamar is called a name. Uh, it literally means eyes. So they met at the entrance of a name, which could also be translated the entrance of the eyes or the opening of the eyes, which is an ironic, ironic place, ironic name, because Judah doesn't see what's going on. Just like his father Jacob was duped uh, in conceiving with a, a woman who was veiled, Leah, so he is duped in the same fashion. But further, he doesn't just not see who Tamar is, he doesn't see his sin. When he says bring her out to be burned, it's that moment he sees his wallet and his keys and his phone and he's confronted and his eyes are open. Look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Judah has had a hard life, he has been mistreated but he adds sin to his suffering. He tried to put the blame on Tamar. He tried to bury and ignore matters out of embarrassment, but God opens his eyes graciously to see, I'm the man. I'm the unrighteous one. And God is doing in Genesis 38 for Judah exactly what he later sends Jesus to do, to show us that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the great Savior. Jesus came and he ate and drank with, it says, with sinners and with prostitutes and tax collectors like Zacchaeus, Why, Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek people who add sin to their suffering and add more and more and more sin to it and are blind to it. He came to seek and save such people. He came to save people who were in the wrong place. You know, in verse 5, we're told that Judah's sons were born to him in the city of Chezeb. Chezeb literally means deceit. He's in the city of deceit. He's in the city of lies. He's blind. He's living in deception. He's in the wrong place. He's made the wrong friends. He's acted lustfully towards the wrong woman. He married the wrong woman. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The very lost, the blame shifters, the hypocrites, those that are far from God. He seeks them and he saves them. That's good news this morning. And so standing there looking at his cord and signet and staff, Judah could have ignored it in that moment. Judah could have very easily just kept the blame shifting going and saying, oh, are the excuses going, oh, you know, my wife died. I was really lonely. He could have have blamed Tamar. Why are you dressing up like a prostitute? But instead he says, no. Verse 26, she is more righteous than I. I wronged her. And then it says in verse 26, he did not know her Again, and that is a reference to abstinence. He's he's walking out his repentance. Now, as amazing as it is that God is saving and transforming Judah, God's work through Judah and Tamar is even more amazing. I want to just remember the storyline of Genesis so far in. Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve had taken the fruit and eaten it, God pronounces curses on them, each of them, and he pronounces a curse on the serpent. But the curse is actually a promise. It says in Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head And you shall bruise his heel. And so from that point on in Genesis 3.15, we are looking for, we are anticipating, who is God going to raise up, who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Who is this promised serpent crusher? And then before that becomes clear, God adds a promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. God says, oh, by the way, kings... Are going to come from your line. And then that promise kind of plays out over another number of years. And that promise gets reiterated to Jacob. He says kings are going to come from you. And Jacob has 12 sons. So which son is going to be the line of the serpent crusher? The promised king. Well the obvious choice is Reuben. He's the firstborn. He has the place of prominence and position, but no, it's not Reuben. And so last week, when Genesis 37 opened, it said, these are the generations of Jacob. The first child to be mentioned is Joseph. Joseph. And when we get this detail about Joseph, we're like, oh, yeah, Joseph's going to be the guy. The king will be the lion of the tribe of Joseph. And Genesis 38 has shown us in detail that Judah is last pick. He's the dirt bag of the family. Genesis 39, we see very similarly sexual temptation and Joseph resists Potiphar's wife. He runs out of the house. He even goes to jail. He's like, I'm not going to sin against the Lord. He is at the top of the list. Joseph is a great guy. And the promise is going to come through Joseph. That's what we're, we're looking at. If we're looking at the polls, who's the candidate that's at the top? Joseph is number one in the polls. All of Jacob's sons are dopes. Judah's the bottom feeder. Joseph's the top man. He's the good guy, and God always rewards the good guy with the promise. Except that he doesn't. God chooses to bring the promised king, the serpent crusher, from Judah By Tamar. He had every family on the planet to choose from. He had all 12 sons right there. Who is he going to use to bring his own son into the world? He chooses Judah by Tamar. And all week, I've just been like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? I don't know what Ur did, the wickedness that he did, that the Lord put him to death, but I can't imagine it's much worse than what Judah did. We know what Onan did. It was bad. It was sinful. But it's not that much worse than what Judah did and the Lord put Onan to death. If God is striking down wicked people, why is he not striking down Judah? Or Tamar? Or me? Or you? But instead of striking down Judah... He opens his eyes to see his need for a Savior. He softens his heart and he says, I'm going to choose you to send my Son, Jesus, into the world as the Savior of the world. He will not be the Lion of the tribe of Joseph. He will be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, there are five, count them, five women that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, and Tamar is the first woman mentioned. It's as though God said, I want this moment, I want this dysfunctional, sin-infested family, this moment to be the family tree that I bring my son into the world. And you add, from Tamar, you add Rahab, who was also a prostitute, not an Israelite. You add Ruth, a Moabitess, not an Israelite. You add Bathsheba, the right wife of Uriah. She's a Hittite. She's not an Israelite. David commits adultery with her. She, these four women, are four of the five in Jesus' family tree. And... It's so that we would get the picture. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And unlike suffering leading to more and more sin, when Jesus comes and He suffers, it's going to lead to more and more salvation from sin. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Every person in this passage, every person in this room, we deserve to bear God's wrath toward our sin. If God took it seriously, we would be, and left us to it, we would be in trouble. But if he bears with us, if he opens our eyes, if he sends his son for us, it is sheer grace, church. Sheer grace. In Genesis 38, we see sufferers, we see sinners, but we get the glimpse, a hearty glimpse of the Savior. Jesus, like the son Perez, is the breach, the breaching son, the the breakthrough one who brings the breakthrough that history needed. And so what, what's, what's a takeaway for us this morning, church? How can we live in light of Genesis 38? Well, I would submit to us, if God can meet this family in their sin, He can meet you. He can meet me. He can meet other lost people that are wondering, have I hit the point of no return You may have a kind of sin that you've committed, or just in your mind, a number of sins that you have done, where you would say, you know, I would hate for a whole chapter of the Bible to be outlining something that I did. But God can meet you. God can forgive you. Don't don't try to run from it. Don't try to blame others for it. Don't try to just hide it or ignore it out of embarrassment. Confess and forsake. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, I read that verse and I'm thinking so often I can feel like confessing sin is like what I don't want to do or a duty. And yet it is such an invitation. It's amazing that it's possible. And so we can extend this to ourselves. And you know, if God can show such grace like we see in Genesis 38... Lead people to repentance. Well, church, we can extend that grace to others as well. We can extend it. We can be ambassadors who talk to people, who extend, here is what God's done. Here is who God is. Here is how, how kind he is. And, and certainly, we want to hate sin. We want to love righteousness. But let, let's never forget, this is a marvel of grace. And we get to hold out that marvel of grace for others. What a privilege that in our suffering and in our sin and the suffering and sins of others, we can point to the glorious Savior who lived for us and died for us and rose again for us, for us and for our redemption that we might be ushered into eternal life. I can invite the worship team to return. It's a horrible chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Timothy Keller says about Genesis 38, he says, this story shows us that the Bible is not a book about moral people who lived perfect lives worthy of emulation. Instead, we see how God uses broken people to bring about the only righteous person who has ever lived, Jesus. So our suffering and our sin, they are no match for God's grace. They are no match for His ability to bring about a great salvation, to bring about a great Savior. It's his name that we glory in, church. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we boast in you. And I'm just amazed afresh, Lord, that... Out of all these people, these men, wicked men you are putting to death, Lord, that we could be spared and ushered in and our hearts soften and our eyes open, Lord, even this morning would you do that for any in our midst. And would you help us, Lord, whatever it is, whatever sin that may be present here today that we've been hiding, that we've been running from, that we're embarrassed by, Lord, that even that we can bring to you. We can confess to you. We can confess to others. We can walk in the light because there is in Christ a great salvation, a great redemption, forgiveness and cleansing. And so I pray you'd help us, Lord. I pray you'd help us embody this for others. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to live in the good of it ourselves. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.